One year, I kind of got an idea, you know, I want to try trap. I like to trap, I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the furball. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Representing trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Perfect and Game magazine. This structure from Perigo Gorman. Perg Lennon's articles, the Perg Lennon ads to information, trapping radios. We are trappers on ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. All right, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because work it ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got very much the same as the you got bogged down. They started talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down top. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't know, get them better. Trying to set predator traps and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like it gets sheared. You better edit this part out. Yeah, we better. Back in the fur shed. This is the Trapping Today podcast. I'm Jeremiah Wood. Great to have you here. Thanks for listening in. The podcast is brought to you by Kotz Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. Trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. Kotz Bros has a full line of trapping supplies, and most conventions are canceled this summer, so you're going to have to get a lot of trapping supplies online. Most of us don't have a shop nearby, so check them out at KotzBros.com. Great selection, great prices, great guys. We're also brought to you by OnX Maps. You can turn your phone into a fully functioning GPS and use it on the trap line. Save you from having to carry around a GPS. I know that. This thing is pretty incredible. You can mark your trap locations, run your tracks, uh, track everywhere you go. Um, you can see landowner information, aerial imagery, and all this is both on your phone and accessible on your computer. It all backs up to the cloud when you get home. It's a, a pretty amazing system for trappers. You can find them at onxmaps.com and 30 bucks for a year subscription to the app. But if you enter the promo code TRAP, T-R-A-P, when you check out, you get 20% off. So pretty sweet deal. I think you ought to be getting an Onyx. I actually, uh, I, I don't know, I could probably tell you every week what I use it for uh, today. Uh, this afternoon, I was actually cutting some uh, timber on my property. And I was in the kind of in the back corner. I don't have a fence line there. So I, I know where the line, where the property line is supposed to be, but it's not marked. And it, it runs parallel to the edge of this field where I do have a fence line on. And you know how it is when you get in the woods. You, try, you can get turned around a little bit, try to figure out where you're at. And you don't have anything necessarily to orient to. And I, I was kind of spinning around thinking, okay, where's the line supposed to be? Where am I at right now? Oh, let me pull up on X. So I pulled up the app on my phone and it showed me right where I was. And I, I spun around a couple times, moved around to see where, uh, where I was in relation to all the features. And I continued on with confidence that I wasn't cutting wood on someone else's property. So uh, you never know what you're going to use this for. Uh, I use it the other day. I went fishing. Um, just, you know, I, I, I still use my Garmin GPS, but, uh, it's not very convenient to carry around all the time. I when I do when I run the trap line, I always have kind of a backup because I'm really super paranoid about 
something blowing up and then not being able to you know remember where my traps are so I always like to have some redundancy there so I have I have like a written record and then I have the uh, the on X and then I have the GPS going all at the same time um, I'm I'm slowly transitioning toward just using on X but uh, but I right now I still I, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll I'll use the GPS like the first run to mark my my, all my trap locations when I first set up and then if I'm going and just checking the line and not setting anything new um, I will just use just use my phone and use Onyx so it's pretty slick anyway check them out and uh, thanks uh, to Onyx and Cotsboros for supporting the podcast and stay tuned for the end of the episode we're going to have another Cots Brothers deal of the week it is going to be another good one so stay tuned for that tonight's episode we got a lot to talk about we're going to primarily focus on the 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 big news right now for me and for for folks uh, that have been listening in for a while some of you know about this some of you don't but the Walter Arnold book is complete it is ready it is finished and it is available to purchase so this is a big deal for me because it's been about two years in the making trying to put this book together uh, a lot of work uh, a lot of emotions invested into this and uh, it's it's just so exciting to see it actually all all come together in in, in a book form. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. But first, I wanted to just touch on the whole subject of this summer with the coronavirus and the lack of trapping conventions for people to go to. And I I really you know this is the entire trapping industry is changing very slowly. But it's changing, and it's it's kind of moving as technology moves. We're seeing uh, a lot less of the physical stores and uh, trap and supply outfits. We're seeing fewer books and DVDs. We're seeing uh, more guys getting supplies online. We're seeing conventions that, for the most part, uh, attendance is probably down a fair bit. So we've slowly been transitioning to this electronic world where people are getting their trapping information on YouTube, Facebook, podcasts, uh, etc. So that's kind of, it's been a long, slow sort of uh, process to, for that to kind of work its way out. And, and in, in the meantime, there's still a lot of people that, that are doing, you know, going through traditional brick and mortar trapping supply companies, people that uh, still do things mail order, not online, people that only read physical books, don't read, don't read stuff on websites necessarily, and so uh, we're we're kind of in this this slow transition where the trappers kind of are kind of uh, oftentimes a little bit slow to catch up with the rest of the world because the demographics are, you know, trappers tend to be. Uh, a lot higher age bracket. Of course, we know uh, a lot of a lot of you guys are are in kind of the younger. We from our survey, we had a average age of 38 years old, so we're kind of a younger demographic uh, in the trapping community, and a lot of people that are just getting into trapping. However, th- one of the things that most of the newer trappers tell me that that really made the magic for them was attending their first convention. Because it is an entirely different world where it's like you're at a place where everybody 
is kind of on the same page with you. You have the same sort of backgrounds, uh, the same interests, desires, and it's something like trapping just captivates so many people. And there's so many different aspects of trapping that uh, you can't talk with the rest of the world about because people just don't know what you're talking about. And so there's so it's like it's like family, you know. So you go to a convention, and it's like, oh, this is family. And I was excited to go to a convention this summer, go back to Neil Olson's and meet all you guys that that I I met last year and the year before, and catch up and be like old times, you know. That that's something that I'm gonna miss for sure. So even though things are changing, we're moving towards more of an online trapping world community. The convention is something that can't be replaced. It's very difficult to replace that uh, one-on-one contact with people, the you know, the camaraderie, the demos, the booths, being able to go up to a vendor's booth and actually feel the physical product, try it out, see what it looks like up close and personal. So there's a lot that's going to be missed. And a lot of you guys are, are not going to be able to go to a convention this summer. And so you're not going to have that opportunity. Um, I feel a void there and I know a lot of you are feeling a void as well and I've I kind of been thinking brainstorming a little bit I've been kind of uh, I texted with Kyle Kotz about it this week a little bit um, never came up with any solutions but I it's just rattling around in my head and it's bothering me a little bit uh, because it's something I I kind of would like to see I'd like to see a way for us to sort of make up for that you know, what we're losing for not being at conventions. So I don't know if you can, maybe you can help me out a little bit. jrodwood at gmail.com, J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com. By the way, any questions or anything else, feedback, whatever, feel free to use that address to contact me. But I want to know like what you think would help. You know, what are you missing from conventions uh, this summer and what you would like to see that might uh, might make up for that or, or might, you know, I don't want to say replace a convention, but something that could could uh, sort of fill that, fulfill some of those needs that uh, you have as a, a trapper that, that was planning on going to a convention. So I don't know. I really don't know if there's anything there, but like there's some things I've thought about that really would not be feasible for me. I'd have to kind of like take a month off of work to do this, but it would be awesome to have like uh, like a two-day marathon, either a live or semi-live thing where you just interviewed all these big names in trapping and had it go for two days where people could listen in and provide feedback and comments and everything. Um, I think that would be awesome. Uh, I, w- I don't have the time to be able to organize all that and, and put all that together, so it's off the table right now, but it's, it's one of those things that that crept into my mind the other thing was like uh, you know maybe a supplier trapping supply company could have like a virtual booth where you know they took video of of a bunch of different supplies and things they had set up that they would have set up at convention and showed what they had what how it worked and all that to kind of give you the experience of being there at uh, at the booth uh, as if you, you were in a convention um, I thought about, you know, doing some live videos or some YouTube videos. I do have my uh, demo that I did at Neil Olson's convention last summer on under ice beaver trapping. I am going to put that up on YouTube 
here in the next couple of weeks. So so that'll be something. But um, just I don't know. I've, I brainstormed a little bit about it. Maybe we could do some sort of a, a, a live stream on YouTube or something. Just something to get sort of that feel of community and uh, and get keep kind of the trapping fires burning. Um, one thing that Kyle said was just, hey, just keep doing what you're doing because uh, a lot of people are tuning in and the podcast continues to grow and you're you're gonna you're 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 a positive force in trapping just as it is. So that's kind of encouraging, but I, I kind of uh, it would be great to do more and there's a lot of uh, things, you know, information and contacts and things that I pick up from being at convention that I'm gonna miss miss out on this summer as well. so. Shoot me some ideas if you want to, and uh, we'll we'll go from there. Maybe it'll turn into something. Maybe it won't. I get I get a few ideas. I'll still keep kicking around. Now for the main topic of tonight's show: Walter Arnold, Main Trapper, stories from one of the last mountain men. This is the book. Uh, I mentioned it last week. I recorded that episode Saturday night, and Sunday morning it did. The book did go live on Amazon. So the book is published. Uh, it is available. Uh, it's only available as a physical book right now. Not a there, there's no Kindle version of it. It's a it's a paperback book. It's the Amazon says it's 342 pages long. There's like it's like 328, but then you got kind of like the preface that the introductory part is uh, Roman numeral. So I guess it all adds up to 342. But it's a big book, and there's a lot there. There's a, a just a ton of material. So what I wanted to do tonight is kind of give you the background on, for those of you who don't know how I got started in the book, a little bit of Walter Arnold's background and the process of getting this book book kind of uh, to the finishing point. And then I wanted to read a, a couple of few excerpts from the book to give you a feel of uh, what you might expect if you buy it. So for those of you who have heard from me, a lot of people have purchased the book. So basically, it came available on Sunday morning, and I made it uh, my job on Sunday to email probably about 50 of you, maybe you know 50 to 60 of you. Um, and I just went through my my email contacts and looked at people who had I'd corresponded with back and forth uh, from the podcast. So so people who I'd talk trapping with that I knew were listeners to the podcast. Um, I kind of keep stuff together in email folders and and uh, I had a list of names. So I thought, you know, those people, I had some people who specifically said, oh, I heard you're working on the book. Let me know when you want a copy or when you when you have it available, I want a copy. So those are pretty easy. Um, and then the rest of them, I just, I just started firing off emails. And if you haven't done it before, it's a it's a lot of work, 50, 60 emails uh, to different people. And uh, actually, you know, I may have done more than that. I didn't, I honestly didn't count. It may have been 70 or 80, but uh, I, I did those and immediately the responses started coming in. So uh, that's the other thing is when you send 50, 60, 70, 80 emails, then most people will respond and then you know you're responding back and you're going back and forth and all that and so it's been uh you know been a lot of email action for those few days but uh i was very very excited about the response now if you have not gotten contacted by me either either uh, you we have an email before or you're in my email and i didn't find you 
why don't you get the book? Very much appreciate you picking up a copy of the book, supporting me, supporting the podcast. If I have ever provided value for you through this podcast, um, you know, it's free. Uh, There's a little bit of advertising, but the advertising doesn't cost you anything but a few seconds of your time listening to the ads. And most of the time, it's a pretty good deal for you. So uh, there's a lot of free information. There's a lot of, of really cool trapping talk and stuff, and it's all free. And I've, I've made it a point, most podcasts are free. It's very difficult to go the paid route, and uh, I, I've decided not to dive into that. But for that reason, that means I have to find ways to justify financially that continuing to do this podcast. And one of, the re- one of the ways to do that, aside from the advertising, is, is things like this, little projects. So, you know, I shoot out a bunch of free information for you on the podcast, and then once in a while I'm going to ask you for a favor. So tonight I am asking you for that favor. If you haven't purchased a copy of the Walter Arnold book, I would really appreciate if you did so. Um, you can purchase this two different ways, and I'll mention this probably a little later tonight as well. Um, but you go to, there's two places you can get this. You can get this on Amazon.com. Or you can get it by mailing a check to me. Um, so, Amazon.com. It's all you got to do. You go to Amazon, search Walter Arnold. It'll show up. In fact, if you just do a Google search for Walter Arnold Main Trapper. It'll probably be in the top three search results. At least it is for me. Um, and it's like 19 something. If you're Prime, I put it up for 19.95, and Amazon actually lowered the price a little bit on it. It's like 1932 or something like that right now. Um, that'll probably bounce around a bit, but uh, you can you can go there if it's Prime. It's if you have Prime, it's free shipping. So I mean, it's a pretty good deal for a 342 page book. And if you send it to me, I'm gonna have to to pay to ship it. And actually, have I I get a bunch of copies coming to me, and I'm shipping those out to people. So if you want to uh, to buy it directly from me. One of the things that I still can't get over, but a lot of people want me to autograph the book. And I kind of joked it. one of my old friends, he's passed away now, but he was a, a mentor of mine in, in the fisheries world and a really, really good writer. And he wrote a book on salmon, uh, landlocked salmon. Um, and so I, I, I wanted to get his autograph. I really look up, looked up to the guy and I wanted to get his autograph, so I mentioned it one time when he was coming up to visit um, that I'd like to have him autograph my salmon book. And he kind of laughed. He said, well, yeah, I guess so, but you could probably just spill some coffee on it be worth about as much. <laughs> so that's kind of the way I feel. You know, it's like my autograph's not worth anything, but people have a lot of people have asked uh, that. So if you, if you do want to get a physical copy uh, that I ship out, I will autograph and scribe those so um, just let me know and that's going to be twenty two dollars just to because I cost me cost me four or five bucks to ship it so uh, e- email me jrodwood at gmail.com and it, for uh, for twenty two dollars you send me a check I'll give you my mailing address um, if you email me and uh, we'll fire that right off when I get them. Now, the book, if you get it from Amazon, what they do is called print on demand. So they they like print copies of this just as soon as you order and they ship them out. For me, I'm I'm ordering, like I've, I've ordered 75 this, uh, like a, over a week ago, 
um, well, about a week ago. Yeah, it was right when they became available Sunday morning. I, I ordered a bunch. And there's a for bigger batches like that, there's a bit of a delay in printing. I think it's due to coronavirus because everything's kind of slower than it used to be. So those are not going to get to me until the 6th to the 8th of July. So as I release this episode, it'll be about 8 to eight to nine days, seven to nine days until I actually get those books. So I have half a dozen checks from people that have that have sent them in. If you have sent me a check, if there's a bit of a delay, I apologize for that. But as soon as I get those books in on the UPS truck, um, that same day I am going to print off all the shipping labels and have them in the mail the next day. So uh, it'll be probably a late night that night, but um, I will get them to you. I apologize for a bit of delay, but uh, it's kind of out of my hands. Uh, but if you do order on Amazon, that's that's boom, almost instant. Um, from the people that I emailed and all the response I got back, a lot of people bought copies uh, instantly on Amazon, get a lot of checks coming in. And then uh, Paul Dobbins was, was very kind to allow me to post information on the book on trapperman.com, on Trapper Talk Forum. And a bunch of people checked that out and had a bunch of people respond. Actually, a couple guys have got gotten their books already and have responded. Uh, got a lot of good feedback so far. So uh, that that was great. And I still got to reach out a few other places and, and try to spread the word. That's Marketing is really not my specialty. And so that that's going to be a bit of a challenge for me is to try to find the right channels and and get this book out there. But uh, I have a lot of ideas, and the next month, uh, as soon as I get more physical copies in hand and and get a few other things figured out, the next month is going to be a, a lot of trying to spread the word on this book. So that first little spate of sales was pretty awesome because uh, the book bumped up. It was, I think it's still number one. I have it in two categories, which of course there's not a trapping category in Amazon. But in the Amazon books, uh, you can pick categories. I had it in sports history and in hunting. So in sports history, it's the number one new release. And in hunting, it's been bouncing around the charts there. Uh, Steve Rinella, Meat Eater, is just unbelievable. You look at the hunting books, like you look at the top 25 hunting books and seems like at least half of them are me are Rinella's books it's just amazing what that guy has done in terms of of uh, writing and marketing and promoting and just just awesome so but anyway uh this uh, this book the Walter Arnold book actually you know a bunch of people ordered it at once when I was emailing and, and getting around on T-Man and it spiked up to I believe number 14 or 17 in hunting for quite a while. It's bounced back down now. It was in the 20s back and forth. Uh, sit back to 17 and then it went down. I think it's like 40. It's in the 30s or 40s right now. But that's pretty exciting. So what that means is people who are looking for, you know, just kind of browsing the top hunting books might stumble across this trapping book and maybe, uh, maybe decide, oh, that's interesting. I've always thought trapping was interesting. Don't know much about it. And buy a copy. So that's uh, that, that's exciting. I just looked at it. It's 33 in hunting right now. But if you guys start buying copies, man, that's going to bounce right back up. And and uh, we'll, we'll keep it in the near the top of those rankings and, and really get uh, get people going. Um, maybe, maybe promote more, sell more books. That would be awesome. Spread the word on trapping. And some really cool history from a really interesting cat. So that's where I want to go now is, is kind of 
Uh, let's talk a little bit about Walter Arnold, who he was, uh, what the significance of this whole story is, and uh, and then maybe through the go through the process of, of putting this book together. So Walter Arnold was born in 1894 in Willimantic, Maine. So Willimantic is one of those little towns. There's about 150 people in it now. I'd, it was probably about the same size back uh, 125 years ago when he was born. Um, but it was it, it's one of those towns that's it's quite a way south of where I am in Maine, but still uh, very remote and right on the edge of the mountains. It's kind of western to some people might call it northwestern Maine. And uh, Arnold, his his father was a woodsman. I mean, through and through a woodsman. He was a market hunter and a trapper. So this was back in the day when, you know, before they had a lot of, even had a lot of hunting laws. And market hunting was a big thing. It was, you know, people hunted to provide food for towns and, and sold like, you know, deer and moose and bear meat to people in, in the villages to survive. So he was a market hunter. He was a trapper he was a lumberjack, and and he kind of instilled in Arnold this this love for the woods. Uh, Walter Arnold started off; he was, you know, th- think it'd be in his his twenties, his teens, and his twenties. Uh, he did a lot of guiding, and actually, Arnold kept a journal basically his entire adult life uh, of his time in the woods, and and it's so you know, obviously it spans about fifty years, and I actually pod through a lot of his you know his original journal writings his, his journals he, there's just a whole stat there's a whole box of journals that I looked through as part of this research it was really interesting I mean a lot of the early stuff you could tell he was just guiding fishermen all summer long almost every day and a lot of it was very there really wasn't much detail like you know for a day there might be uh, you know guided on Sebec Lake caught three trout rainy 70 degrees or whatever it'd be he they'd just be really brief stuff and going you know through hunting season and all that so so he was kind of one of those guys that a lot of us can really relate to because he wanted to make his living outdoors Arnold started trapping he he absolutely loved trapping um, but trapping wasn't enough he was doing a whole pile of other things he was a lumberjack. He worked in the woods when he was a kid. His dad was working in the lumber camps and took Arnold along when he was just a teenager. So he had a lot of background there working in the woods. He uh, worked at a fish hatchery. He was looking into, I've got all the correspondence I've looked at where he was you know, looking into fur farming, doing a bunch of that sort of thing. And at some point when he was pretty young and trapping, he wanted to start a trapping supply business. Um, he also served in the military, so there's just a, a pile of different things that he did. He was I, a lot of the stuff like I go through this book and I, I read Arnold's writings and I look through all of his papers and stuff and it's like I feel like I feel a lot of similarities uh, with the way he thought and the way I think in a lot of ways. And one of the things that I think we both had in common was just so many different ideas and not quite enough time in life to, to do them all. And so, so he was always looking for new opportunities and ideas and, and was kind of thrived on that. 
So he went into the trapping supply business and I've gone through a bunch of his letters, correspondence with different uh, trap manufacturers and suppliers and he got all geared up and he was providing trapping supplies to people. Of course that cut into the trapping a lot, but um, he was a businessman. Um, he started making trapping lures early on. Uh, he he imported a whole pile of trapping lure making ingredients for trappers. He was actually the first person who really brought in ingredients uh, from other places and imported them just specifically for trappers to be able to purchase. Um, before that, you know, there were people who purchased ingredients, but they were lure makers and they did not share that with, with other trappers. Um, so Arnold did a whole pile of different things. Probably the, the two things, though, that really stuck were trapping and the lure lure making uh, side of the trapping business. The, the the big difference though between Arnold and a lot of people now this is where we're going to get into Arnold as a trapper and I want to make it very clear it, because it's, it's real easy for us to romanticize and make legends out of people because just because it was a long time ago and they you know they we kind of I don't know as all the way from boyhood and even in adulthood we all we all want heroes I think it's a natural thing to to want heroes and and there are a lot of guys out there that kind of uh, epitomize the the whole you know mountain man and independent person and and it's something that a lot of us look up to so Arnold has been a hero for a lot of people for a long time so uh, at the uh, at, I take great risk and <laughs> in saying you know things that are less than than uh hero status when talking about Arnold but he was a human too. So one of the things I want to emphasize is that he's not famous because he was the greatest trapper that ever lived. And he wasn't even, you know, among a lot of the greatest trappers. So we 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 hear the name Walter Arnold, we think legendary main trapper, legendary trapper in general. And, you know, maybe I'd sell more books if I said he was the greatest trapper who ever lived. If you listen a couple episodes back in this podcast, I talked to the guy Billy Thompson. Billy Thompson's father was was no doubt a better trapper than Walter Arnold. Um, the guy spent 20 years in the woods without essentially no contact with other people trapping, and he put up unbelievable numbers on foot and had seven or eight line cabins. and Just an incredible, incredible trapper. Walter Arnold, you know, Billy's dad, he probably, he, he catch 60, 70 beaver in a winter. Walter might catch 20. What's the difference? The difference in what has made Walter Arnold a legend and what I want to emphasize and stress to you, because I think it's really important, is Walter Arnold was a writer. Walter Arnold wrote down his experiences. He communicated that. And what made him a legend, what made him this famous trapper, and what gave him a lot of success as well in the lure-making side of the business, he communicated with people nationwide in the trapping community. And he shared things with people. So we have his writings. We don't have all those old-timers that would have been legends. They would have been incredible, but they never wrote. They never cared to write. They didn't think it was important. Maybe some of them didn't know how to write. Um... 
but the gift that Walter Arnold gave us was was these writings. And so what made him uh, more notable than, than most other trappers was Arnold, for through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, published articles in Fur Fishing Game magazine, which was the go-to magazine for outdoors people uh, back in that back in those days. There were a lot of trappers reading those magazine articles, and Arnold had a lot more trapping experience than most of those trappers, and so that kind of turned him into a household name. It turned him into a legend. And the things that he did and, you know, beyond that and, and all the different experiences he had, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I, I did notice and observe with Walter was while a lot of people have catch a lot of fur, catch a lot of animals, I'm a little bit less interested in how many animals you put, put up and how many animals you caught as I am in what did you learn from each animal you caught? And that's what I've tried to do myself, of course, because with with my personal life, I don't have time to be a full-time trapper. So I can't catch piles and piles and piles of fur and, and also, you know, fulfill all of my other responsibilities. So what I try to do to become a better trapper isn't, oh, I need to catch, you know, hundreds of animals every season, I want to learn as much as I can from each and every one of those animals. And that's how I become a better trapper. And it's going to take me longer than a lot of you guys um, that are that are pounding the ground and putting a lot of time into it and catching a lot of fur. But I, I, I want to learn as much as I can for every experience that I have. And I felt like Arnold really maximized every experience. And he wrote about it and he thought about it. You could tell he put a lot of thought into um, into all of his um all of his trapping and outdoors experiences. So Arnold really became famous from this writing, and I assume that it became a pretty important part of his income. Uh, and he continued to do it. He, the thing is, he didn't. It doesn't appear as though he had like a steady monthly column all the time. He kind of was in and out, and so he had. You know, if you actually look at trapping articles, you know there there were dozens of them. But there weren't hundreds over the course of those 30 years, so so he was uh, somewhat sporadic. Um, but but he wrote a lot, and he it spanned a lot of time. And you can tell kind of the writing style early on. It's pretty cool because you can see kind of the progression. Um, all of these articles I have, I give you a little background information at the beginning, and you have a date uh, when they were originally published. So um, so you can kind of see that progression. Um, but anyway, that's that's kind of Walter Arnold. That's kind of what he did. What made him unique was he wrote and he preserved his records. He understood the historical significance of, uh, and who knows, maybe it was a little bit of ego. He really seemed like a super humble guy. I think he just was, uh, here's what I think. I, I don't think he was, I don't think he was self um, self absorbed. I think he was such a historian and so fascinated by history. He realized that, hey, what I'm doing here is some pretty important history for people um, to look back on in the future. So when when he was getting older, Arnold had, again, another thing very unique about Walter Arnold is he kind of lived uh, 
a, a regular lifestyle where he he had a home, had a, a a little bit of a you know kind of a farmhouse. He did the lure trap spy business, did the lure making. He'd go out for months at a time, and he'd actually he'd come into town. So he and he was all trapping on foot, and he had all these remote cabins in the woods, and he'd go out and trap for about a week at a time, and then he he'd come back into town. Talk about a hard worker. He'd walk back you know, 10 or 15 miles to town to his house. And then he'd be packing lure bottles, you know, all, all night and maybe catch up on some sleep, get some chores done, uh, ship out a bunch of lure and then he'd go back in the woods. And so he, he'd, you know, spend week, a week at a time stint. It was pretty typical on the trap line uh, for him, but that he kind of maintained that for a large portion of his life. And then something happened and he made a big change in life and went off to live in the woods alone full time year round he was uh, i i got it written in here uh, he was i believe he was in his 60s i can't remember the exact age but he decided his main trapping cabin he decided he was going to move in there um moved all his stuff in there only accessible by plane it was on a lake and uh, very obviously no neighbors or anything, so it was extremely remote. And he lived there until he was in his 80s, until in, until he passed away. So um, so that was pretty uh, that was pretty unique. He died in in 1980. He would have been uh, like 85, 86 years old. It, and toward the end there, he was in magazines, newspapers, nationally. I mean, he was he became famous because he was like this last of the woods hermits, you know, last of the, the old style guy, the old guys that just lived alone in the woods that that was becoming less and less common. And so he, he got a lot of notoriety from that. Um, he did have a lot of visitors. He had a lot of friends actually, you know, read through a bunch of correspondence with a bunch of his friends. So that, that made him unique as well. Um, but anyway, just going, going back here to, uh, the articles that Arnold wrote for Fur Fishing Game and all of the papers and his his uh, records and his correspondence and there were six or seven boxes of this that he saved and he very carefully organized and put together and he donated them to the library at the University of Maine because he understood the historical significance of this work. So he he even went so far as to make a scrapbook. It's just fascinating. I'm, I'm going to post, start posting pictures at some point of all of the images, all the pictures that he had in this scrapbook that he was, that he put together and he explained who was in the picture and where it came from. When he was selling lure, he was selling lure all over the country. And so he'd have people send him pictures of their catches and, and it was, all, you know, everywhere, all over the place and people who he'd written back and forth to and friends he'd made and stuff. And others in the supply business, guys like E.J. Daly and uh, O.L. Oki Butcher, just really, really neat stuff. And and he put this all together and he donated it to the University of Maine. And it was sometime in the 70s when he did that. Interestingly enough, um, you know that w- that was kind of cataloged away, and it was it was put into some um, boxes on a shelf in the library storage in the special collections department. Now most of these libraries, these larger libraries have special collections departments and it's a place for them to 
preserve local history for the most part and things of historical significance that would otherwise be lost. So they store these away and they actually have now the computer databases are such that most of the information on what's available in those collections is uh, posted online. So basically long story short for approximately 50 years Walter Arnold's papers were in that special collections department um, and you know probably one or two three four people a year would go in and check them out if that and go I say check them out you can't take them from the library but go you know take the boxes get the get the boxes delivered from the shelves and and lay them down and, and kind of sit down in the library and go through the stuff no one ever really did anything with that um, for 50 years nothing nothing had changed nothing had uh, come out of this other than you know a few trappers a few researchers that were really you know found it pretty interesting or or got, had the chance to look through it and thought it was cool that's great but I I really felt that Arnold wanted to a lot of this information to be shared with uh, with a broader community and I think all of us kind of thought that uh, Oscar Kronk was going to write a book on Walter Arnold and maybe he still will but but uh, Oscar is in his 90s he's kind of an old timer and he wrote a great book on V.E. Lynch the legendary bobcat trapper from up here in northern Maine it's called the book is called they called him wildcat V.E. Wildcat Lynch he's a guy that Charlie Tucker mentioned in our last couple of episodes uh, a, a couple of times so it, it would have uh, Kronk bought Arnold's lure business when, later in life when Arnold moved to be in the woods he sold the business to Kronk and, and Kronk's animal lures are still available at uh several trapping supply companies he's still making them um you know going strong in his 90s great guy uh, there's actually clint locklear on trapping radio did an interview with him when clint came to maine this was a long time ago it was when i was i was out west but he did an interview if you search for for oscar cronk on clint's trapping radio you can listen to his sit down um, just a great interview with with a real great guy he used to come up here and have a trapping camp uh, my understanding I've heard that he sold that since uh, I've never I was up in the woods around his camp quite a bit and I, I never did run into him I don't think he spent a whole lot of time up there but uh, in in more recent years that's probably why he uh, sold it but that was kind of the logical person because they were friends who's friends with Walter Arnold and and uh but you know life is busy and and uh he he did not write a book on Walter Arnold and and maybe there's still an opportunity to but anyway I knew this was available and I was always fascinated by it I went to school at the University of Maine and I knew I knew about Walter Arnold I you know Maine Trappers Association has a history history uh section on the website talking about arnold and i was just incredibly fascinated by the guy so i stumbled i don't remember how i stumbled across it but when when i was in college man you get a lot of free time in college it, at least it seemed like it uh, at the at the time it might not have seemed like a lot of free time but i look back i'm like man i can't believe i was able to do all the things i did uh, 
you know, college just, for me anyway, it just didn't, I guess I didn't struggle too hard at school. So I, I kind of, I had a lot of free time and I spent a lot of time in the library just going, pouring over all these outdoor hunting and fishing, trapping books, anything that I could find. That's where I found that Richard K. Nelson, Hunters of the Northern Forest and a bunch of other books that I spent a lot of time reading, way more time reading those books than I did studying. But I knew this Walter Arnold collection existed and I I really wanted to look at it. It, But I I don't know, when you're young like that, I I just didn't feel like, I don't know, I, I, part of my personality, I guess, uh, I, I just didn't have a lot of confidence in myself and that I was, I guess I didn't feel as though I was important enough for them to go and take seven boxes off the shelves and haul them out just for me to be able to look at out of my curiosity. So uh, several times I walked by the special collections department, they're up on the third floor of that library and boy, I wanted to go in there and I wanted to look at the Walter Arnold papers and I, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I couldn't work up the nerve to go do it. Um, so I, I kind of forgot about it. I got a degree. I moved on. I moved out west. Got a job. Went to grad school out there. Got a job. Did a bunch of stuff. I trapped a little bit out there. Um, and I, I never gave it a thought. Then I moved back here. And still really never really thought much about it. Um, you know. I, I don't even know if I I heard the name Walter Arnold for years. And I went to summer of 2018, two years ago, I went to Neil Olson's Trapper's Weekend. And I met this guy, Eric Martin. And we, me and Cole, uh, my friend Cole Porter, we're, we're sitting there watching demos. And all of a sudden, this guy's doing a demo on bobcat trapping in Wyoming. And I just moved back from Montana and so he was talking about, you know, and I, I tried to trap bobcats in Montana, failed miserably, but learned a lot. And I was just fascinated by this guy from Maine who went out there for a full season, a couple seasons actually, and he just spent the entire winter chasing bobcats out in Wyoming. Incredible, incredible. He had all these pictures, telling stories and everything. His, And so after he got done, I kind of, you know, I'd, this was how many years after college? Probably, uh, probably twelve years after college. I I kind of got over that whole shyness, and I'm not important enough to go up to someone and talk to him. And uh, Eric was walking back to his truck, and I was walking out there, and and I said, "Hey, hey, just want to introduce myself. You know, saw your demo, thought it was really neat, and yeah." So we started talking. We talked for about an hour, um, if I remember right, and just talking about trapping out west and all that, and and uh it it was uh it was pretty awesome pretty cool so uh that was that was the first time that we met that actually might have even been 2017 now that i think of it and i might have uh um maybe 2018 was when this whole thing went down with the walter arnold stuff but anyway he the next year um he he we'd got to know each other and he had, uh, yeah, that was 17. So the next year, 2018, he comes up and we start talking, see him at Neil's again. And it was just like, you know, hadn't talked to him the whole time since then. And, and, uh, it was like meeting up with an old friend, you know? So, so we get to talking, catching up and everything. And, uh, 
So later on, uh, that first day we were at Neil's, there was a, there was an auction, um, just a little auction. So we're all kind of standing there just chatting, watching the auction go off. And, uh, and he says, Hey, I want to talk to you about something. And he just got to his real serious mode. And he says, you know, I've been to the university main library and I've looked through Walter Arnold's papers. We had talked about historic stuff and trapping history and all that. He's Eric's really into it, and he said, "You know, I've been read. He'd been reading my column that I write in the Northwood Sporting Journal, and he, he said, you know, you're a really good writer. You could you could really do something with this. There's a bunch of articles there that, you know, haven't seen the light of day in decades at least, and uh, and and he said, I really think you should consider doing something, and." I took it real seriously because it's something that I had always kind of it like flashed back to me like oh my yes absolutely I've been you know like why didn't I think of this earlier and so it, it all kind of came together and I'm thinking you know now this is just perfect I'm I'm really back into trapping in a big way um, doing the podcast doing all this stuff and and uh, you know I I think I can do this now and so uh, the following winter when things slowed down. I started driving down and made a couple of trips down to the University of Maine Library. Um, set things up ahead of time, got uh, got all the those boxes reserved, and they got them all out for me. And uh, I just spent hours and hours and hours of going through that stuff, and it was really overwhelming. To be honest, you're looking at 50 years of a guy's life, and so I I was just kind of trying to figure out what am I going to do here? What am I going to um, where do I start? And so I went home and I, um, I thought about it some more and thought about it some more. And, and I thought the, the most useful thing probably for trappers today and probably the most straightforward thing for me to do would be to try reprinting a bunch of these articles that Arnold wrote in Fur Fishing Game, uh, all those years. And so, uh, I, he had every single article that he's ever written is in that collection. He was very meticulous about keeping things and and he had them all organized and everything. So I decided to start with that. And of course, the first thing obviously is uh, copyright law. So you can't just do this. Um, anything after like 1920, I think it's 1924, 1925 now, anything that was published after that date is protected uh, under copyright even if the author's dead. And so this was a pretty uh, odd copyright situation because um, Arnold, of course, has been dead for a long time. Um, and he donated all of his stuff to the to the university. But it was also all published in Furfish Game. And so um, it was kind of like trying to figure out, okay, and it's not like there's a bunch of money in this, so it's not like uh, some long lost family member is going to come out and say, "Oh, I'm going to sue you because, or I want, I want the profit out of this book." There's really not much profit to speak of anyway. It wouldn't wouldn't be worth anyone's effort. But but still, you know, I I want to keep it legit and legal and 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 uh, respect all that. And so so Arnold, as, as far as his intent, he wanted people to see this stuff. So uh, the next step was the library. So I talked with them about it and the person in charge of special collections and, and she said, listen, 
whatever rights we have to it, we want you to be able to share this information with people. The whole purpose is to get it out. So, so we're fine with, with whatever you want to do with it. So that was good. But then what about Furfish Game? So I actually got, finally got Mitch Cox, editor of Furfish Game, on the phone, which was pretty awesome uh, to be able to get a hold of him. And a uh, real nice guy, as uh, you know, my conversation with him. So we got to talking about it, and, and he said, you know, this has been uh, pretty controversial over the years. Because, so, so who has the rights to an article when it's published in a magazine? Um, that's not always clear. And nowadays, like anything I publish in a magazine, uh, it's it's typically if if either something's spelled out or it comes with what's called First American uh, Publishing Rights, which is kind of the standard for the industry. And what that means is uh, someone buys an article from you, they are buying the right to be the first person to publish that article. But after that article has been published the author retains the right to that work. And this is real important because a lot of authors uh, like to reprint. You know, they'll, they'll write weekly or monthly columns, uh, and then over the years they have a big collection of columns that are never going to get published again. And this a lot of the outdoor writers did this, and they'd republish their columns um, as books. That's what, that's what the Edmund Ware Smith books were. Those were all, like, most all of those were columns that he'd written for magazines. Just put them together in books, and he had, I don't know, eight or nine of them. So so that's that was pretty common. But uh, Mitch was saying that earlier on, back way back in the day, uh, the magazines kind of wanted the rights to those. And there's a big lawsuit and back and forth. And, and basically, the long and short of it is, uh, all of those old articles, um, all of the rights to those belong to the authors. And so... Um, fur fishing game essentially and that was kind of my green light and he's like look fur fishing game doesn't have the rights to any of these articles so as far as we're concerned we'd appreciate uh, just kind of some sort of uh, recognition that they appeared in the magazine but uh, other than that you're good to go so that was like that was just I jumped about three feet in the air you know I can do this this is awesome and so that's when the work began. And if I knew, had known how much work it was going to be, I don't know if I would have done it, but uh, I did. So it's done and it feels good. It feels good to have it finished. So so here's what I did. I didn't publish everything Arnold's ever written. Um, I, I took only trapping articles and only a selection of those that I thought um, were were some of the best and, and were, um, you know, very sort of... Uh, appropriate to put together in this book. I also did a lot of editing. There was a lot of the old writing style. Um, there's a lot of stuff. The editing, you know, wasn't, especially the earlier Fur Fish Game stuff, uh, the, the editing wasn't wasn't top necessarily top-notch. I think it's just kind of the way the industry was at the time. Um, I, changed, I did a lot of editing in, in terms of, like, I didn't change any, obviously, any of the things that Arnold said, but a lot of the the run on like sentences, run on sentences, and uh, grammar and stuff like it was almost. I was joking to myself so many times, like, did they pay him per word? Because there's a lot of stuff he'd say in like a hundred words that you could say in thirty. You know, it was just like all kinds of extra words inserted and and uh, sentences that 
that I had to split up in one sentence, I had to split it up into three or four sentences. That was very common. So it's just a writing style to make it easier for you to read. And then one of the big things I did was I broke things up. Uh, like if an article talked about a bunch of different topics, um, I provided headings and broke those up so that they were kind of easier to read and uh, organize. And, you know, today, nowadays, a lot of people, you know, you breeze through stuff and you want to be able to find things that you're interested in and you may not read cover to cover every word. And so, for instance, if if uh, uh, there's a particular story that, and they were long, like some of these were between four and four and 8,000 words, one article. Uh, some might have been even more than 8,000 words. So I would split those up uh, in terms of uh, just different parts of the article, different things that were going on. Um, so for instance, uh, this one, Never Too Late for a Trapping Adventure. This was, uh, and the other thing was the title. The, the, I felt the titles, the column titles were terrible, most of them. Uh, the title of this column was Beaver and Fisher. Um, you know, what does that tell you about what's written in the, in the column? Um, it just, most of them were that way. And I think the editors just, I don't know, they, it just was different back then, I guess. But so anyway, I, I changed some of the titles in a lot of cases, but I always provided the original title if you ever want to look back on it. Um, and this one was first published in Fur Fishing Game, December 1950. And so here are some headings that I added just to break things up. So you could, you know, kind of, um, if you were, it just kind of helps stay organized and helps you figure out where you're at in the article. An eventful scouting trip was one section. The next section, uh, scouting for beaver, uh, a change in plans, getting on the trap line, beaver season opens turned around, the weather rules, and danger that winter, and finishing up. And so that's that's all kind of broken up just to make it read a little easier. A uh, bunch of photos. I think there's like uh, 35 or so uh, old original photos uh, that Arnold took. Uh, so those are, those are included. And the book is essentially three books. So this... Th- th- when I sat down, I looked at all the articles. I tried to figure out what common themes were and tried to organize them so that they would be uh, it would be easy. They would make sense. And so th- there were essentially three different types of articles that Walt wrote. Um, the first type, um, the first book that I put together was trapping adventures. So that's just stories of adventures and trapping trips and just trapping seasons. Uh, and and things that happened on the line. So Trapping Adventures was book one. Book two I called The Fur Bearers. And book two was Walter's writings on different species. So he had, like he'd have uh, an article on bobcat, article on otter, article on fisher, uh, beaver. So uh, he, he had a lot of topics like that. Those are all together in book two, The Fur Bearers. And then finally book three was Trapping Methods. And this was where Arnold provided uh, different tips, tricks, techniques, methods on on trapping from back in the day. And of course, most of that's going to be outdated. Um, Things have changed a lot in the last 50 to 80 years. However, it's really interesting to look back on a lot of those methods. And I still think there's valuable things you can pick up from reading that. Um, Included in the methods are also a couple of articles on lure making and a couple of special formulas that Arnold provides, uh, several formulas uh, to make your own lures. 
So that is the book in a nutshell. Um, geez, where are that took me a long time to explain. Um, <laughs> I guess what I want to do is uh, I want to read you I want to read you one article from the book tonight, and then maybe uh, in a future episode I'll read another one, and uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll read three or four. I don't know, but um, I do. I don't want to leave here without giving you a little bit of a taste uh, for what's in this book. So uh, I'll pick out an article and we'll we'll read it together. All right, this is the first. Uh, chapter in book one trapping adventures and the chapter is called the lure of trapping here's kind of my introduction who among us doesn't dream of packing up and heading into the woods to trap full-time it's a tough dream not to try and pursue especially when you're young even though most trappers at some point or another had the dream of making a living from the pursuit the reality of the modern day fur market makes the dream a virtual impossibility back in walter arnold's day though it was was possible to make a small living trapping some years. That said, it was still work, hard work, as you'll soon find out. The Lure of Trapping, first published in Furfish Game, June 1932 and January 1933. This was actually two different articles, part one and part two. Trappings are hard life. Them that want to trap can trap. I don't want to trap. Many years ago, this statement was made by a man who understood what he was saying. One of the first settlers up in this locality was a noted hunter and trapper of no mean ability, and is still remembered by some of the older residents in this neck of the woods. This old-timer pushed back into the mountains on trips extending over periods often days or longer, accompanied by his grown son, whose idea of pleasure was not trapping. Large packs consisting of blankets, food, guns, axes, and other equipment were carried. Naturally, the largest and heaviest pack would fall to the lot of the younger man, and without doubt he did work that nowadays would cure many a man of the desire to trap. My dad, who is an old-time hunter and trapper, met up with this old-timer and his son in the woods one afternoon many years ago. They made camp and spent the night together. It was during the conversation that evening the younger man made the above statement. It's not uncommon these days to find people who believe the life of the trapper to be a lazy, easy-going sort of life and that trappers, not caring to work, devote their time to the pursuit for that reason. To be sure, there are some such trappers, and their catch usually shows them up. A man achieves but little success in this world if he fails to work for it. Unless one loves the streams and lakes, the companionship of the birds and animals, and the freedom to be found in the solitude of the wilderness, he will find many easier ways to make a living than by trapping. Although I have been mixed up in trapping one way or another for over 25 years, I never until this past season realized just how much work there could be involved in and around trapping. My partner and I were obliged to start at the bottom and build up a, well, you might call it an organization. During the seasons of 1929-1930, I did practically no trapping as my time and attention was wholly occupied otherwise. During the winter of 1931, I decided to sell my mail order and fur business retaining only, only the scent business, and go back into the trapping game on a larger scale than I ever before had been engaged in. To be sure, there was not as much money to be made, but once more I would be engaged in the work my heart was in. I consider the man I selected for a partner, Bill Gurley, to be one of the best trappers in this locality. Bill is not only a thoroughly good woodsman, but has the reputation of being versed in trapping of other animals than fox. I know quite a few trappers who can trap foxes with continued regularity, but that's as far as their knowledge goes. 
Bill not only knows foxes, but can outwit most any sly otter, mink, cat, or fisher that invades his trap line. On one of the last trips we made, Bill came in one night with a $50 fisher. Bill and I both agree there's no advantage to be gained by two trappers traveling together over the same line. Consequently, we were forced to establish lines which at some points were five or six miles apart, yet locate our camps in such places that would be convenient for both, enabling us to be together at night. There were no camps to suit our purpose, so we found it necessary to build new. We both are engaged in guiding during the summer months. In days we are off duty, we applied to camp building, making footbridges, packing, and other necessary work. We completed one camp during this time, and of course it was right in the hottest part of the summer. We packed boards two long miles from an old lumber camp. We packed in roofing, bedding, traps, dishes, a wash boiler stove, and whatnot. We nearly sweat blood before this camp was in readiness for the opening of the season. The camp is not completed when the walls are logged up and the rafters on. As much or even more time is required for boarding in the roof and floor, laying roofing, cutting out and fitting in windows and a door, building bunks, table, etc., chinking up the cracks between the logs, and many other jobs. We now needed two substantial footbridges, which required two days of our time to build, a day spent looking out our lines, and we would have this end of the line ready for business. As the summer drew to a close, we realized if we were to finish the rest of the work in time for the opening of the season, we must keep busy from now on. We left off guiding the first week in September and now went to work in earnest. There were hundreds of bottles of scent and ingredients to be put up and made ready for the shipping labels, as Mrs. Arnold would take over my mail order business as soon as we hit the trap line. We put in a busy 10 days at this work, and we're now ready to push back 15 miles into the chairback range of mountains, where we were to locate our home or central camp. We'd already made two trips to this campsite during the summer. The first trip we carried 40-pound sacks of actual weight and two 45-pound rolls of roofing with small poles lashed lengthwise of each roll, which was provided us handles uh, to carry. We struggled through in one day. This was hot, hard work, especially climbing the east end of Barren Mountain up into the pass that would let us through into the chairback range. The second trip, we carried 40-pound packs, two-thirds of a roll of roofing, three half windows, and a can of kerosene oil. The lazy trappers. We now started over our third trip. This time, our packs were well over the 40-pound mark. We made a side trip into Anawa Station on the CPRR, that's uh, railroad, and picked up a large sheet steel stove we had ordered shipped there from the factory. Lashing this to two poles and carrying it between us, we went through to the campsite that day. We already had a few boards there and made a snug dry lean-to that night. Rain was pattering down on the roof the next morning, and it was rainy and misty weather all that week. Everything was wet. Soon we were not only wet but covered with mud, but we kept at our task. We would alternate between packing in boards from an old lumber camp four miles away, three by water, one by land, and logging up the camp. We laid green, yellow birch and spruce logs 14 feet in length into that camp that weighed a ton or more each. We had to work slow and carefully. A slip or false move might lead to being crushed under one of the logs. They were wet and slippery and none too easy for two men with one cant dog to handle. We both lifted till we saw stars, and then lifted and strained some more. But the Lord be praised, the day came when the logs were all up and the rafters on. Well do I remember when finally the ridge pole had been placed and stayed. Bill sat up on one end of the camp and I on the other, wet and tired. We relaxed, 
dug out our pipes and lit up, and at this moment of accomplishment looked down upon our work with a feeling of satisfaction. We boarded in one side of the roof and laid the roofing, put in a few floorboards, moved in the stove, made up a bed, and spent our first night in this camp. Our supply of wood, our food was running low, making it necessary for us to return home. Busy days were these. We loaded up with more supplies and equipment, and back we went. It seemed there was no end to the number of boards we packed in to finish this camp. However, in a few days it was completed and named Camp Comfort. From here we pushed through to Katahdin Iron Works, a small former iron mining town now consisting of possibly half a dozen families. Here we rented for our third camp a summer cottage on Silver Lake, one of the beauty spots of Maine. It was not necessary to do much packing here, as we could ship our supplies in by parcel post, and had at that time several packages in the post office when we arrived. The following morning we called at one of the homes there and bought a wash boiler. Taking this with blankets, stovepipe, axe and saw, food and other needed articles, we started east. Seven miles in on the middle branch of Pleasant River, we found a small board camp, six by seven feet. We soon had our improvised wash boiler stove set up and made some needed repairs. We built a small woodshed and filled it with wood and did a little prospecting. We named this camp the Pepper Box. Although we were far at the far end of a four-day trap line, we made it directly home in a day and a half. Not many days were left now before the opening of the season. We packed up about 10 boxes of traps and supplies and mailed them to KI, part of them being addressed to a friend of mine who runs a sporting camp four miles from there. With his horse, he would tote these into his camp. We would go over there later and pack them into Camp Comfort four miles away. We needed a large supply of food at this camp, as Bill's Uncle John was going in to live in this camp during fall and winter. It would take eight days to make a complete trip over and back on our trap line. We could not carry green skins that long. John was to care for the fur at his camp, cut wood, and make at this camp, cut wood, make some improvements about the place, all of which I am pleased to say he has done to perfection, making it one of the best trapping cabins in the state. Bill, John, and I left home October 12th carrying heavy packs. In due time, we arrived at the head of Sampson Pond, which is connected up with the Indian and Dam Pond by a short deadwater stream. A genuine old northwestern was in progress that day, and heavy squalls were tearing through the woods here and there at a merry clip. We got out the 13.5-foot canoe which we had there and loaded in our packs and a bag of traps that were cached nearby. I got in, and it was quite evident that the little canoe had all the load it could handle in this gale. Bill and John took a trail through the woods toward camp five miles away, and I started out on a four-mile canoe trip as full of thrills and excitement as any man could ask for. All right, I'm going to stop it there. My voice is getting tired. So anyway, that is just the first part of the first chapter, um, uh, uh, Walter Arnold, Main Trapper. Uh, that chapter is called Lure of Trapping. And uh, again, the book's loaded with this stuff, lots of trapping adventures, tips and tricks, uh, species observations, information. Great book. I really appreciate if you pick up a copy, get to Amazon, search for Walter Arnold, Main Trapper, or uh, send me an email, jrodwood at gmail.com, and I'll give you my mailing address, and you can send me a check. So uh, with that, thanks, guys, so much. And let's talk about our Cots Brothers Deal of the Week. Cots Bros, again, great place to get your trapping supplies and great guys to deal with. They are uh, ready and willing to um, take up a bunch of that increased um, 
business from people that can't make it to conventions. So, you know, they they got a lot going on right now. I know they're shipping out a lot of orders, trying to keep up, and uh, business is good. Um, but they got lots of stuff in stock, and uh, you want to check them out. So, fur handling stuff. The special today is 10% off of all skinning knives. So, if you want to pick up some skinning knives for the fur shed, um, not only for fur handling this season, but also maybe you're going to be deer hunting and you want some knife to knives to skin out a buck or or cut up meat or whatever. Uh, there's awesome selection of knives here. The Weeby selection, the Weeby collection, whatever you want to call it. Um, these knives are, are really high quality and they have a whole pile of different knives. Um, and Cots Bros has their, all, all of their different uh, products. So the Arctic Fox folding scalpel knife, the Boss Dog scalpel knife, the Monarch. These are like the Havilon Piranhas, essentially the same thing. They have uh, removable, replaceable razor blades um, that you can pull on and off. That's essentially what I use on most of the skinning I do in the fur shed. They got the Weeby Beaver knife, uh, the the Pelter pelting knife, um, all kinds of different things. They even got some some uh, a Dexter Bowling knife, uh, just uh, some standard skinning knives. They even got some resharpened skinning knives you can find at a pretty awesome deal. All of the skinning knives are 10% off, and the product code for that is Skin10, S-K-I-N, the number 10 for 10% off all skinning knives. That is available until July 12th. So check them out at cotsbros.com. Pick up your trapping supplies. Thanks for your support, Cotsbros, and thank you guys for tuning in. Um, I hope you pick up that Walter Arnold book. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate any feedback that you have. If you've bought it on Amazon, go ahead and leave a review on Amazon. That'll get uh, get more people um Get, get more people interested in the book and get it ranked. Get it, let's get it back up in those rankings in the hunting books. So get more people exposed to, the, to a little bit of trapping. Thanks, guys, so much. Until next time, keep on talking trapping. Keep on thinking trapping. Get ready for trapping season. Days are getting shorter. It'll be here before you know it. Take care.